But anyway, good morning. Glad you're here. Let me get a little zip in my step. And uh, we're it, it, continuing our study in the book of Matthew, as you know. And Matthew, as you know, is teaching us how to live as kingdom of God people in a world that is running away from God. And the, Jesus is teaching us that it's very different to live in his kingdom and be like him than it is to be like in this world. Now, last, uh, last week we talked about the laborers and that sort of thing. And the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this week you're going to see the disciples do something rather amazing. Jesus is going to just pour out his just pour out his emotions to the disciples and say, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be crucified and beaten and scourged and that sort of thing. And the disciples immediately go into, who's going to be first? I want to be first in the kingdom. I want to be number one. And they just miss the first shall be last and the last shall be first from the last teaching. So we're going to be talking about Jesus is going to say, I am going to die. And the disciples are going to be, we want position. We want authority. We want to be noticed. So let's see what Jesus has to, deal, has to say about this and how he will deal with this subject. Please stand as we read the Word of God together. You know, we honor God by standing when we read his word, the infallible, inerrant word of the living God, which we hold high. Chapter 20, verse 17 through 28. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. And so he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it was prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. You but you, but whoever excuse me, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for this time that you've given this group of people that have come here from all over the place to hear the word of the infallible, loving, wonderful God that we serve. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help each heart here to receive what you have for them specifically today. Whenever we hear the word, there is something that comes at us that is specific for us. And Lord, help us to get that, bring it in, and may we live here a little bit different than how we came in. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As you know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. And as we say every week, the king is coming. The king is coming. Praise God, he's coming for me. 
Hopefully just put your name there. We're all me's. Me, 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 if you believe in Jesus as your Savior. Now, last week we talked about rewards. Uh, we talked about rewards, and apostles were very concerned, Peter in particular. What are we going to get if we serve you? And it was, he, was, he was basing that on the rich young ruler who Jesus told him, come and follow, come and follow. But he couldn't because he couldn't give up his stuff to follow Jesus. And so Peter's saying, well, we've left everything. What do we get, Jesus? And Jesus says, okay, you're going to get, get, you guys are going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. That's going to be your position. And then he says something interesting that is for all of us. Whoever has left anything, mother, father, sister, brother, lands, work, whatever it is, to follow him, you will receive a hundredfold. God is a generous rewarder a generous rewarder of his people. So remember that. Now, where are we at in the timeline? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Literally, we're weeks away. We're closing in on the, on the last week of Jesus' life. When we get into the triumphal entry in the, in the next week or so of Jesus into Jerusalem to accept his kingship. So he's on his way to die, and he knows he's on his way to die, and he's feeling the stress and the pressure. Jesus knows exactly what crucifixion is. He's living in a Roman environment where he saw people all the time hung on the sides of roads on crosses. And he saw the beating and he saw how people died. And this is affecting him. Remember, Jesus is all God and all man. More on that in just a few seconds. The disciples have been instructed during these last days of Jesus' life. He talked to them about uh, many things. Divorce, little children come to me, the rich young rulers, their rewards for laboring for him. But his death is impending. And the stress is becoming, is becoming a weight on him. And you'll see that happen right now in verse 17 through 19. Jesus knows exactly what's coming. Now, we don't know what's coming. We don't know how we're going to end this, this, this life of ours, but it will end. It's 100%. Everybody gets a high A in death. Everybody's going to die and pass on unless we are the generation that sees the return of Christ. And we're going, yes, we could very well qualify to be that generation. But even if we're not, we will pass through that precipice of death. Jesus knows what is coming, verse 17. Now, Jesus going up to Jerusalem, you always ascend to God. You're ascending to the city of God, that special place on this earth. Took, and Jesus took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. It is a fait complete. No more diversions. No more going to Perea. No more going to any other place. We're going to Jerusalem, guys. This is it. And the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And it must have, it had to reach somebody in that group. Somebody in that group. Death, this is the third time he's mentioned death, dying in the book of Matthew. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify in the third day he will rise again from the dead. Folks, it's getting closer and closer and closer. Jesus is going to experience death, and he's going to experience a brutal death. Jesus is facing crucifixion. Now, look at, listen to this. Listen to what he said. Mock, scourged, crucified. That would send chills up anybody's spine that is looking at that potential of death. It's supposed to be one of the most painful ways that you can die. Painful ways. The flagellation, that is when you got beating and scourged. Listen to this. Now, the Jews would limit the, 
the scourging to 40, and, they, and so they wouldn't break the law. They only went to 39 stripes. And, and this, this flagellum had broken bones, glass, pottery at the end. And when it raked across your body, it ripped the skin off. And they happened to go around your abdomen. It could actually have your in, intestines just pour out and you would die from the beating. That's what he was looking at. Josephus puts it this way. The, the, the flagellations that were carried out in Palestine were, and the strokes were delivered with such strength and vigor. Because the Romans had no restriction. They could just beat you mercilessly. They had no 40 stripes. They could just beat you and beat you. And that's what Jesus experienced. They exposed the victim's innards. He also confirms that scourging was a prelude to crucifixion. And we know that Jesus went through this. Jesus knows what he's coming. But you know what? This isn't the worst for Jesus. Jesus knows that he's going to take the sins of the world upon himself. Every sin that we ever committed through the history of humanity, billions of people, Jesus is taking all of those sins on himself. And he knows at that time that God cannot be in the presence of sin. And he will feel the separation from his Father and from the Holy Spirit. Never before in the history of forever had that ever happened. And he will cry out in that time. Remember when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's feeling the pain of that separation. I think this discomfort exceeded his physical discomfort. He was grieving with this. Now think about this. Jesus is God. God incarnate, God in flesh. Jesus is also man. He is the God-man. And you will see something on here called the hypostatic union. And that's a theological term that means that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. The hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is both fully human, never forget that, and fully divine, never forget that. He is the God-man. There is no mixture or dilution of either nature, and that he is one united person forever. Jesus, when he came here to become one of us, is forever one of us, and forever God. That is the hypostatic union. Now, Jesus takes the 12 guys aside. He's on his way to face his death. He's feeling this discomfort as a human, okay? He knows what's coming, and they're on the road, and, and he tells them, I'm going to die. Now, look at, he, I, what I think's happening here, these guys are his friends. We know that in John, he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends, you are my friends if you do whatever I teach you. If you obey my teachings, then you are my friends. That's the criteria for being his friends. And he wanted his friends close to him. Every word commentary says this about this. and They, they, they write this so nicely. His words pulse with intention. The very air surrounding them was tight. There seemed to be a heavy weight hanging over the Lord's head. Jesus is consumed with deep thought the kind that quickens a person's pace, tightens their muscles, and strains facial expressions. Well written, every word commentary. Now, what you need to realize is that Jesus is on a mission to do the Father's will. That's why he came to earth. That cross was why he came to earth. He came here for us, to die for us so that we could live with him forever. He's on a mission. Hear the honest heart of Jesus. In John 
12, 27. My soul, this is how he's really feeling. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's on mission. Jesus has a mission. You get the, get the sense here. Mission. I'm going to play off of this for just a second. Now, our call that we have in life, how, whatever God has called us to, may be difficult. It could be a, a difficult mission, but stay on your mission. No matter how hard it gets, stay on mission. Our mission may be scary. Now, there's times when things get scary out there. Things get into our lives, and we're uncomfortable. Stay on mission. Don't allow your fear to rule you. And finally, this will come up on the screen. Our mission will be over one day. Until then, stay on your mission. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says this. This is our mission, to run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, mission accomplished. Now, we have a mission. We have a mission. You're in a race, and you have a couple pictures here. This is how you want to picture yourself finishing the race, okay? And this is a person that's bursting through the finish line. You're running the race. I'm the champion. I'm making it through. But I want to suggest to you that this life is not easy, and the next picture that comes up with the person crawling to the finish line is finishing just as strong as the one bursting through because they have not given up. They have not quit. I am going to finish this race. I am going to stay faithful. I'm going to finish my mission. So that's the picture of this whole thing. Now, the reason I say this is because life can become overwhelming. You know that. You're living here. You experience this wonder of life on planet Earth. It's not so easy. And we're encouraged by the culture that we live in. Go along to get along. Go along to get along. And I would suggest to you that you never, ever go along to get along and that you never, ever, ever quit like that marathon runner, that young lady crawling across the finish line. I am going to finish my mission through the strength of God in me. I can't finish on my own. I need his strength. Winston Churchill was a great guy. You're going to see a quote up here. I've quoted him many, many times. Remember what was going on when he made this quote early in World War II. Prior, prior to the Americans beginning involved, in 1939, the bombs started on Britain. Over and over and over, the Luftwaffe overwhelmed the Royal Air Force. And they were bombed with impunity, and the people were crumbling, and they're wondering, when's the isle going to be invaded? And this man, being a leader, gets on the radio, and to his people, he says these words, as you can read, never give in, never give in, never, 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 and nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions, honor, and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And Hitler, in his time, it was Hitler, the overwhelming might of the enemy. In our life, we know that it's the enemy of our souls, Satan, the demonic realm, and that sort of thing. We know it's also the culture that is controlled by the enemy of our souls. 
We are never, ever, ever to give in to the values of the culture because we're in a different kingdom with a different king. So that's the key. Now, with pressure to conform, and we all have the pressure to conform, to, to, to be accepted by the world, how can I finish strong? Now, I want you to look at the next picture here and see if you can identify with this. This little kid is looking at these steps. Look at his head. He's just looking. He can't imagine taking the first step, and he's got to go all the way up. How am I going to finish this race? For in just a very little while, Hebrews 10, 37, he who's coming will come and not delay. Our God will come for us. But my righteous one, my one that belongs to me, will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, if you withdraw, I will not be pleased with him. Picture yourself here. The culture is against you. Your family might be against you. Your workplace might be against you. And he's asking you to take a step. One step at a time. And I call these steps of faith. Faith, folks, is the key. Faith is the key. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. Galatians 3.11, the righteous shall live by faith. And you know that? Know what? When it's overwhelming, when life seems like it's got you right by the throat, and like you can't take another step, remember this. With God, all things are possible. With him, you can make it through. Jesus tells his friends what's bothering him. He's being, he's being vulnerable. He's telling him, I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, delivered. Then he adds this. But... The third day, he will rise again from the dead. He will rise. And every Sunday, every Easter Sunday, we say, he is risen. And you would say, he is risen indeed. That's right. It's from the darkness of the grave to the victory of, of the resurrection. The grave could not hold Jesus. The grave did not contain Jesus. And folks, the grave will not contain you. When you go to a funeral and you see that old shriveled body laying in a, in, a, in a coffin, folks, that's not you. You have already exited. You are already in your new, new form, okay? Hip, hip, hooray, that is not me, gone. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that old thing is gone. But you will rise again. How do I know? Because Jesus said it in John 14, 19, because I live you will live also. Now remember, everyone's is going to be resurrected. Some to the resurrection of eternal life and some to the resurrection of eternal death and separation from God. Remember, death is separation. Here it's temporary. But in the spiritual separation is eternal separation from God in a place well known as hell. It'll ultimately be the lake of fire. That's the final destination of all who don't believe in Christ. But if you believe and receive the gift of salvation, you won't go there. Now, Jesus pleaded with people, don't go there. Whatever you do, and he warned multiple times, don't go there. He talked about everlasting torment. He used the word ionios, and that means eternal torment, eternal separation. There's some people that will teach you that hell is a consuming fire, or hell is a temporary place, and you go there for a time and pay your dues, and then you finally get out. No! No, what the scripture says, it's eternal separation from God or it's ionios, eternal heaven with God. Same words, same words. The Bible describes places where we're going to go and what you do here with Jesus 
will decide your forever. This is very serious that you deal seriously with Christ. Now, they have this thing as I want to be first. The disciples are just oblivious to what's going on, and they are so self-absorbed, they're going to go, I want to be first, 20 and 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, and by the way, she's a cover for these guys. These guys have a desire to be first, and they're going to have mom intercede. The reason mom is going to intercede, her name is Salome. And Salome is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Jesus, Salome, is, is the aunt. James and John, the sons, are the cousins. They're playing on their relationship with Jesus for favor. That's what's going on here. So he says, the mother came to her sons, kneeling down, worshiping, and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on the right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Just grant that, Jesus. Just, just give us that. We want to be one on the right and one on the left. Now, these are guys are called the sons of thunder, James and John. They were part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. What do they do with Peter? They just kicked him off to the side. Forget you, Peter. We're worried about us. We're worried about it. They, they leapfrogged Peter and went straight to Jesus. Now, James and John, the elite of the elite, the, the, the inner circle, they still don't get it. Give me position, Jesus. Forget about you dying. Give me position in the kingdom. And again, the, mom's, the mom is a cover because it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 39 through 35 through 40, it gives their Mark's rendition of this. James and John make the request. Jesus knows who's making the request. Jesus knows who really wants position. It's these guys. Now hear this. Please hear this. Self-promotion is common for fallen humanity. Learned from the master of self-promotion. You know him as Satan. He was known as Lucifer. Lucifer. And I want to talk to you just a second about Lucifer's self-promotion. He promoted himself. He, he was the most beautiful of God's creation. He was the highest of God's order of creation. He was beautiful. And then when he fell from his position because of pride and arrogance and wanting to be worshipped, his name was changed. From Lucifer to the shining one or day star, it was changed to Satan. Or if you look it up, if you listen to the to the Bible commentary on it, it says Satan, Satan, the great Satan, the adversary of God, the devil, the accuser, the one who comes between people to separate. You've had him in your life. Come to separate you. The devil is an expert at deception, distraction, folks, and destruction. He'll promise you the moon, and he will deliver hell for eternity. That's what he gives you. Satan wanted to be first as recorded in Scripture. Ezekiel 28.15 puts it this way. You were perfect. Now remember, everything God creates is perfect. When he did the creation at the beginning, and in Genesis 1.31, he said it was all very good. All very good. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity or sin was found in you. Now let me have a question for you. People struggle with this question. Where did evil come from? Why does God allow evil? Did God create evil? I would suggest to you absolutely not. He did not create evil. He created everything perfect. 
what he did was he created people, uh, uh, humans and angels, with the ability to choose contrary to him. That's called free will, contrary choice. God gave people the ability to volitionally love him, not force them to love them. So that's the, that's the, the thought here. So anytime you see anything evil in this world, every funeral you go to, think that goes all the way back to Satan, the fall, and humans falling. Satan's fall, humans fall, and the consequence of sin. Entered into God's perfect domain. Isaiah 14, 12 puts it this way. What's the, what's the attitude here of, of someone that wants to self-promote? How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nation. See, he's, he's in control of all the nations now. He usurped control of planet earth. He's the ruler of this world, Jesus said at least three times in Scripture. He's the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's the one running this world system that we're in. We're in. The world is still God's. It's still God's. The earth is, in the, Lord, is the Lord's in the fullness thereof and, the, and, and everything in it. He, he owns the earth. But this temporary ruler has usurped authority. And what you see is the mess that we live in today. How you are fallen to the ground, you who have weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, in your inner being, I will ascend into heaven. Watch the eyes. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. All the other angels, stars are angels. I want to be above all of these guys. He already had the highest position. He wanted worship. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Oh, I'm going to be something. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, and all of you will worship me like you worship God. That is the hubris and arrogance of self-promotion. And our fleshly fallen natures are all about self-promotion. That's why Jesus said over and over in the last teaching, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He'll go further here and say that one is great here will be your servant. The last first, the first last. More on that in a few seconds. Now watch Jesus' response to this request, verse 22 and 23. But Jesus answered and said, do you not know what you ask? Or excuse me, you do not know what you ask? And that's a, that's a great statement. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In other words, are you going to be able to go through what I'm going through? And they answer this way, not having a clue what awaits them. Yes, we are. We are able. Now, that's arrogance. That's arrogance. That is presumption. So he said to them, now, how would you like to hear this? You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptized that I am baptized, that with I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand and left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it was prepared by my Father. You guys are going to suffer. Watch me die, and you are going to walk. That's going to be your future. That's what's going to happen to you. That's what he's saying here. Very clear. That's what he's saying. That's his response. So Jesus, straight up. Now remember the. Over and over, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. He's trying to teach these guys. Cross is imminent. These are last day's warnings for them. These disciples, please get the message. Please get the message. Please get the message. 
Jesus answers straight up, you do not know what you ask. Now, let me say this. Can you identify with that? When we do not know what we're asking for, give me that promotion. Oh, Lord, I want that house. That house, I mean, uh, give it to me. Oh, Lord, I, 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 I claim it in the name of Jesus. I go to all that stuff, you know. Oh, please give it to me. <laughs> the car, the woman, the, the, the man, the person you think you love. Folks, claiming something that you want, be careful. Be careful in doing this. We have the right to go before our God and ask him, Lord, is it your will for this house? Is it your will for this spouse, for this person? Is it your will for this, that, or the other? That is the key. Your will be done. I don't have a clue what the neighbors are going to be like if I get that great house. And I don't know if the septic tank is going to overflow into my bathroom. You don't know if there's something wrong with the foundation and you've just wanted that house, okay? No, we do not know. God knows. James and John are looking for position that's a big deal. And Jesus says this, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Are you able to do this? And these guys answer in an amazing way with presumption, like I said, we are able. And might I say to you, in their strength, the answer is N-O. No. By the way, most people don't like that word. If you're a teenager, you really don't like that word. No. No, you can't do it. And then you get the fit. No. No. But I would say by the Holy Spirit power, yes. Yes, you will. They have no idea what is coming. But at Pentecost, something special happened. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on these disciples, poured out on the church, poured out on every believer, and gave them the power to do the impossible. Remember Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Not equivocating to these disciples and to us today, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And folks, they were. And they died brutally. Some of them were cut in two. Some of them were filleted. Some of them were stabbed. Some of them were crucified. Peter's crucified upside down. They did experience the baptism that Jesus was talking about. But it was only through the Spirit's power. Let's talk about James and John, the guys that asked this. James is the first one that is martyred. We see that recorded in Acts 12, verse 1, when Herod Antipas is having a fit with the church, and he wants to persecute the church. So he grabs James, one of the higher-ups. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass, to kill some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and most people believe he was beheaded because that was Herod Antipas calling card. He did it to John the Baptist. Then he sees Peter, threw him in jail, and so Peter's looking at the same consequence. Now, he miraculously gets out. An angel gets him out and all that stuff, but that's a different story. Then John, what about him? Well, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was exiled to the island of Patmos, where you know he wrote the book of Revelation. Okay? Very significant book, tells us about things that are coming. Now, the guy that sentenced him there is Domitian. 
Domitian. He was the Caesar, the, 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 the ruler, the Roman ruler at that time. And what this guy did was he erected images of himself, full of pride, full of arrogance. You worship me. Now in Rome, you could worship your God as long as you put Caesar above all the other gods. The Christians couldn't do that. That's why they were lit up. They were thrown into Colosseums, eaten by lions, and that sort of thing. John would not do that. So what did they do with John? Domitian says, okay, I've got some misery for you. I'm going to boil you in oil. And he did. And he didn't die. So he's ticked off, makes John drink poison. John drinks poison, and he doesn't die. So now he's having a real conniption. He's having a fit. And so now he exiles him to Patmos. I'm going to isolate this guy. He's going to have a miserable life, miserable death. And then he writes the book of Revelation there. The lesson is this, folks. It, and I think you know this, and I hope you know this as a believer. It will cost you to follow Jesus. Did you hear that? It will cost you to follow Jesus. Oftentimes we, we say your time, talent, treasure, that sort of thing. But it will, you will have to sacrifice to follow him. Many at some level will pay a price. All at some level pay a price. Some will have to pay the ultimate price, their lives. You're going to suffer from your job promotions, family, friends, cultural disdain, ridicule, because you are kind of ignorant Christians. Ignorant Christians. Jesus was very clear about the cost in Luke 9.23. You know this verse. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Watchman Nee says this about that in his book, The Normal Christian Life. The cross is an invitation. It's a picture to death. It's an invitation to put to death the desires of your soul, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, and sublimate them to God. To die to the self-life and follow Jesus the question is, for every believer, how can I serve the master? How can I deny myself and serve the master? And I would suggest to you this concept is almost non-existent in the Western church. This thing of self-sacrifice. This thing of, of putting God first and my needs and my desires second. Remember, the first shall be last. The last shall be first. Over and over he has said this. Throughout church history, folks, there are many who sacrificed all. And whoever these people are that sit on his right hand and his left hand, that is going to be a big power position. And the Father will determine this. But I would suggest to you that Jesus, in his glorified state, with the Holy Spirit and the Father, all in agreement, who's on the right and who's on the left. Now, in verse 24, you know what's going to happen in any group when somebody wants the top spot. There's going to be offense, isn't there? I'm offended. I'm offended. The ten are offended, verse 24. And when the ten heard it, now again, they're kind of full of themselves too, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. In other words, they wanted to just wring their necks. I mean, how dare you beat us to the punch? How dare you get the, go for this position when I should have that position? Now think about this. Think about who is behind all of this. It appears to me, that Satan has his greedy fingers all over this dispute. Ephesians 6.12 gives us a, a clue as to what happens with these interpersonal problems that we have in life. Think about what it says here. Paul says, 
We do not wrestle. We humans do not wrestle. That's combat, close combat, intimate combat. It's not like boxing. You can be from a distance, but it's boom, your body to body, thrashing around, close combat. When we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, humans, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Folks, there's always demonic elements trying to cause you to separate. Remember, that's what the devil does. He's a separator, not a uniter. God is a uniter. The devil is a separator. He comes between people. Now, this offense that we're talking about, now you've heard this before, but it's a good to remember, is a great tool of the enemy. When you get offended, then you get distracted from your mission. See, we all have a mission that we are to complete. He wants to keep you from the mission. He wants to keep the infighting going. He wants to stir it up. Now, John Bevere wrote a book. It's called The Bait of Satan. Now, I'm not endorsing everything that John Bevere does, but I like this. Okay, I think this is a pretty good thing that he's written here. And he says this. There's a sequence of events. Offense. What is an offense? That's the trap. It's a word of scandal on. It actually means the bait in the trap that is so tempting for you that you stick your head in there like a rat. I was going to put a dead rat's thing in here, but I figured I'd bypass that. And you get caught in the trap. You're offended. You're offended. And folks, it is easy for us to be offended. Our, our fallen DNA just sucks up offense like a, like a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> offended. I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm offended. Well, that leads to the sense of betrayal. There is a sense of betrayal by the offended party. You betrayed me. You betrayed my trust. You betrayed me. It, which leads to hate. That's the third phase, hate. That's not a vehement hate. That is a withdrawal of affection. Happens all the time in marriages. I'm not going to talk to you now. You offended me. And so you go into the quiet phase and the, uh, the pretend, well, I'm not really not mad at you, but I really am mad at you. Uh, that whole thing. Okay? Maybe it doesn't happen to you, but it happens to me. <laughs> With, and so there's, there's this withdrawal of affection. It means to love less. To love less. That leads to this feeling of being deceived. Now, this is the part where you garner support from everybody around you. You ever see somebody offended, they will always go to somebody else and tell all kinds of people, no, this is not somebody else. This is us. This is me. This is, this is, this is, this is the way we function, okay? This is the way we function. We're getting support for our feelings. So we tell everyone, stir it up, stir it up, get the thing going. And it ultimately leads eventually to isolation. If you don't stop this thing, you end up isolated and withdrawn. And that is exactly where Satan wants you. Isolated, withdrawn, and offended. Now look, this has happened to everyone in this room. This is the way it is with us. So we have to realize when the bait is dropped, not to take the bait, or if we're in this process of some time, wherever we are in it, come to your senses and say, no, I'm not going to do this. I've done this enough. I've played this game enough. I've fallen for this trap enough. I am not doing this. And then make things right with whoever you're dealing with as best you can. Jesus won't let this thing fester. He addresses the offense immediately. Watch verse 25 through 26. He knows how dangerous this is in a group. 
verse 25 through 27. But Jesus called them to himself. Hey, you guys over there bickering. They probably paired off grumbling and moaning and groaning about this James and John. Called them over to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. They want to be first. And those who are great exercise authority over them. That's the world's way. Yet it shall, now watch what he says here. It shall not be so among you. You're different. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. The first shall be last. And whoever, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Same concept. Same concept. So, servant. Be a servant. And I can just hear these guys in the group. They might not be saying this to Jesus out loud, but they, they might be thinking this, the same thing we would do. Servant. Servant. Well, I want to be the king. I want to be the one in charge. Servant. Me a servant? Position. Power. That's what we want. Jesus, again, is talking about first, last, last, first, that sort of thing. The top dog pecking order that humanity is so much entrenched in. Jesus' response to this, this thing is incredible. It shall not be among you the people of God. The people of God are not to respond the way the people of the world do. We are to be different. Why are we different? Different kingdom. Different kings. Different values. Different goals. A different worldview. Folks, we're the family of God. We've been changed by God. Remember, you're in a process of being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Not acting like the old you but acting like the new you. Remember Romans 12 too, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to think differently. Why? Because we're in a world that has taught us to think the opposite of God. And we must be trained to think like God, transformed into a different mindset, a different thinking, be conformed to, to Christ. And he says in verse 27, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And you can almost hear them go, oh, not that, Lord. Now, remember what a slave is. Now, this is not human thinking. This is not human thinking. This is not the way of our world. It is not. A slave in this context is the word doulos. You've heard this many times. Doulos. And you know what it means. Five to ten percent of you might know what it means. I've mentioned it multiple times, but I know how much people actually take in. In any talk, you're getting about ten percent. Get this ten percent, okay? Get this, put this in your vocabulary. A doulos, the person's will is consumed with the will of the master. It's volitional. It's not forced enslavement. It's volitional. We are slaves of Christ, folks, not slaves of our fleshly nature. That's who owns me. As slaves of Christ, we willingly submit to Jesus and put others above ourselves. Again, this is not a human thing. This is not a human thing. This is supernatural. This is a God thing. John MacArthur says this, the cost of True greatness is, is humble, selfless, sacrificial service. The Christian who desires to be great and first in the kingdom is one who is willing to serve in the hard place, the uncomfortable place, the lonely place, 
the demanding place, the place where they are not appreciated and may even be persecuted. And then he goes on to say this, greatness in God's economy is the following. Three things. Number one, to withstand criticism without becoming bitter. Put that hat on. You're pitiful at your job. I can't believe you did that. I mean, try, try, to, try not to get bitter with that, okay? This is a God thing. To be misjudged without being defensive. Folks, that's our, that's our, that's our go-to place. Defend myself. Defend myself. I'm offended. And number three, to withstand suffering without succumbing to self-pity. Not ask you. I ask me. How am I doing? How are you doing? These are hard things. This is not the norm. And folks, I can, I can, I can digress in any of these things that quick. That quick. And I can make a flesh choice instead of a faith choice that quick. And justify it. And justify it. Now watch what Jesus does. He's going to model what he expects from us. Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served first place, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. Did you hear that? Jesus, God, incarnate. God came, your creator, your sustainer, your life giver, your life giver. Jesus came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came. The ransom price for you was his life. His life for your life. He died so you can live. For those set free, the most honorable thing you can do is serve your king. You have been set free from the kingdom of darkness. You have been set free. Now, what does serve Jesus look like? What does it look like? I'm going around saying my prayers so everybody sees me. I'm a monk chatting in a, in a, in a cave someplace. and I'm real religious. I'm doing a lot of religious stuff, making sure that you see I'm doing this religious stuff. Because remember, it's all about me. No, no. What is service? I would suggest to you, service is worship. Worthship. What we put our greatest value in. What we ascribe to God, the greatest worth of all. God must, must, must be first in our lives. Everything is after God. Husband, wife, children, hobbies, work, sports. And this one, video games. Yes, video games, they have to come down the pecking order. You are serving and worshiping God when you give him the highest place in your life. Now, some closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. Now, I usually give two reasons why Jesus came. I'm going to add a third one here. Number one, he came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. To destroy the works of the devil. Now, you can say hip, hip, hooray, he did that. And number three, to serve, that's what we learned today, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I want you to think about something. The ransom price was paid. He took the price that was paid, gave it to the Father. It was his life. Think about this. No kidding. The whole world is under the control 
under the rulership of Satan. Most people don't know it. A lot of people deny it, pretend it isn't happening. But if you are not in the kingdom of God, then you are in the kingdom of darkness. It's one or the other. There's no gray area. It's saved, lost. That's simple in God's economy. Think about this. Jesus rescued us from Satan's jail. He, he broke you out. He broke you out. He took, remember Roy Rogers? Well, you don't know Roy Rogers. But anyway, there was this cowboy long ago in days of years of yesteryear. And they would take the jail and put a rope on it. And the horse would trigger, would pull the, ho- the, the, the jail bars out. And out would go Hopalong Cassidy or somebody. And away they would go and rescued. Well, Jesus rescued us from Satan's jail. And I might say this. It's a violent rescue. It is a violent rescue because Satan wants you in his grip and doesn't want to release you. He is forced to release you. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. You've heard this before. He, God, has delivered us from the power of darkness. And there is a power in darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And you know what I'm going to say next, because I've said it a million times. Well, lots of times. Delivered word, the word delivered is a rumai. Rumai. And if you have a Bible, write it in there. Rumai. And it means to draw with force. Violence. Violence. To drag, to pull. Meaning to deliver or to draw out of danger or calamity. And to liberate. To liberate. Set free the captives. Now, those liberated, those set free, no longer belong to Satan. They belong to Jesus. By simply saying, I believe in you, Jesus. I put my trust in you. I am going to come and follow you and not the ways of this world. If you do that, you can be saved. Believing is is committing to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. Embedded in that word believing is the word repentance. Turning away from my sin, turning, turning to Christ, turning away from my sins. For everyone who believes you've been liberated, set free, no longer believing that belonging to Satan. Jesus' death paid the price for your freedom. That was the cross. That was the atonement. You swaged the wrath of God. It, it, it pleased God to have his son die so that you could live. That was the atonement. But the resurrection was the victory over Satan and death. And good news is this. You will never die. You will never be separated from God. When you take your last breath, I think we should change this whole thing for Christians. We talked about this the other day. From death until I've been lifed. I've been lifed. I have not been death. I have been lifed. I am a, I have, that's a new me that is there. And I want you to think about the condition of people in our world today imprisoned by Satan. Imprisoned by Satan. Now, we have something called the 1040 window. And within that 1040 window, the general way that people live is in squalor. And we have a picture here of Bangladesh. This could be India. This could be Indonesia. This could be any place in that 1040 window where the gods of this world predominate and have people under their thumb. This is where Hinduism is, is, is the predominant religion. This is where Islam is the predominant religion. Satan holds the world captive. 
And Satan owns every person that is not a believer. Whether you believe that or not, it's irrelevant. That is the truth. That is the majority of the planet, 8 billion people. Now listen to these statistics. Of the 8 billion people on the planet, 2 billion, actually it's about 2.3, 2.4 billion claim to be Christian. Claim to be Christian. Say, I'm a Christian. If you're born in America, a lot of people say, well, I'm a Christian. I was born in America. I was born in Germany. I was born in Europe. I was, I'm a Christian. They, they have the tag there. Of the 2 billion, it is estimated that less than 10% are genuine believers, born again of the Spirit, coming and following the Master. Did you hear that? See, it isn't claiming that you're a Christian. It is are you a Christian? Are you a true believer in Jesus Christ? So, with that, 9% of those who claim to be born again have a biblical worldview. That's from the Roy's report of September 2021. Now, I want to give you a picture of what a biblical worldview is. Now, these are the things, if you're a Christian, you'd be expected to believe this. So it's coming up on the screen. Do absolute moral truths exist? Is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? You better believe that. Is God all-powerful, all-knowing, creator of the universe? Does he still rule today? Yes, he does. Is salvation a gift from God that it cannot be earned? Absolutely. Salvation is by grace through faith in God alone, not of works. Is Satan real? People think he's a pretend guy. This is the most beautiful of God's creation. He is slick, he is sly, and he has the whole world befuddled. Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his faith in Christ with other people? Yes, you do. Is the Bible accurate in all of its teaching? Yes, it is. So that's to have a biblical worldview. You just have to believe that type of thing. Okay? Now, I would suggest to you that there are people that might fall out on some of these things, but still would be considered Christians. But the vast majority of people that claim to be Christians are not Christians, folks. It's just that simple. In 2018, they had a biblical worldview breakdown. Now, if you notice, this slide will come up. Well, let's see. Picture, uh, hold on. I might not be there. I am not there. Hope I didn't mess you up. So the Amer this is the next one. The American church, folks, is on a free fall into the darkness. This is what I believe the plight of the majority is. People who claim to be Christians, but they're just not in the light. And they're falling, falling, falling. And actually, the church today is falling farther and farther away from Christ. Farther away from Christ. Now, with that, I have a picture of a biblical worldview. The, the different generations. That'll be the next slide. The baby boomers, 10% have a biblical worldview, all the way down to 4% for the Gen Zers. The next slide will just break this down into age groups. And, you know, the Gen Zs are 11 to 26, and then it goes down to different age groups. But notice that there's not that much difference. The boomers are 10%, and these guys are 4%. But there's been a mass exodus of people believing real Christian principles in our world. That's what I'm trying to get across here. In Christianity Daily, March 6, 2023, very current information, Barna, uh, had, they, they actually uh, reported on Barna Research, out of Arizona Christian University. And that revealed something, kind of what you, I think you would know as the truth. 
there's a disparity between self-perception of who I am as a Christian and reality of who you really are as a Christian. The millennials, 44% claim a biblical worldview. 4% of them do. The Gen Xers have 53%. 6% actually have a biblical worldview. Baby boomers, that's my generation. 54% say we're Christians. We're Christians. We're not like this new generation of people. We're not like you guys. 8% have a biblical worldview. And then the World War II folks, okay? 62%, 8% have a biblical worldview. What is going on? Perception is not reality. I mean, what you think is going on is not what really is going on. This, there's this disparity between self-perception and reality. Now, falling away. This march is lockstep with the falling away that Jesus said would happen before he returns. That'll come up on the screen, Matthew 24, 37, and 38. But as it was, this is what it's going to be like. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the second coming of Christ. What was it like in the days of Noah? They were giving in marriage, eating and drinking, going about their way, doing their thing, ignoring Noah and ignoring Noah's God. And that is what is happening today. And it's happening in the church today, of all things, globally. Globally. Jesus said in Luke 18.8, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? There's going to be a falling away from the faith. What will the state of the church be prior to Jesus' coming? The falling away comes first. 2 Thessalonians 2.3. This is known as the apostasy. That word falling away, the abandoning of the true faith. Now, what will it look like? Giving heed to deceiving spirits, as it says in 1 Timothy 4.1. The whole population, folks, is being deceived. Now listen to this. Jesus came here. Jesus lived here. Jesus was rejected here. Jesus died here. Jesus ascended from here. Jesus promised he will come back here. And Jesus promised to take you out of here. That's the rapture of the church. While we are here, here, do not be caught up in here. Now, did you get that? Enough, enough here's here. Don't get caught up in here, here, yeah. Here is for a short time. There is for a long time. Do not be caught up in here. James says it perfectly. Life is but a vapor here for a moment and gone. Do not put all your eggs in the here basket. Now, we're living in a culture. We see things because we have studied prophecy. We see things unfolding right before our eyes. Have ears to see. Have ears to see. Have ears to hear. Eyes to see what's going on around you. Be, be alert to the prophetic signs that are happening right before your eyes today. As, as our world is imploding. And when you see things happening, he says in Luke 21, 28, Look up, folks, look up, look up, for your redemption draws near. Folks, I think we're in the beginning, I think we're in the prelude to the birth pains. A lot of people think we're in the birth pains now, I think we're in the Braxton Hicks contractions. Those things where the woman thinks that she's going to have the baby any moment, and it's false labor, okay? 
but it's close. I think we're in the stage setting. It does not make a whole lot of sense to fight for promotion here when we'll be leaving here. It's not that we're not to live here, but don't fight and scratch for here, to be like here. The disciples turned their eyes on themselves because they wanted position like here. I would suggest you turn your eyes on Jesus and look to him. Remember the hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Folks, I'm praying that you truly know the Savior, that you truly know him, and that he is coming. He is coming. And the question is, is he coming for you? I hope that you're part of the 2.5% that are genuine. Now look at You know what's happening around us. You see the news. You see the apostasy in the church. You see the advancement of technology. You see that things are being put in order for artificial intelligence, for the, the, the prolonged nation of life, for humans being transported into computers, and somehow AI is going to give us eternity. That type of thinking is permeating our universities, permeating our government. It is a prelude to the Antichrist coming. Folks, you can almost hear the footsteps of Messiah. Folks, he's getting close. The king is coming. The king is coming, and hopefully he's coming for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. This is your word that you've given to us. And Lord, I pray that these words will be indelibly imprinted into our DNA, that we will receive from you what you have for us, and that we'll put our trust in you, our God. Not in here, but in you, our God. Thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, please do your work in each one of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.